Hello and welcome to Everybody Loves Communism, the leftist history and theory podcast where we do the reading so you don't have to. I'm Jamie Peck. I'm Aaron Thorpe. And I'm Jorge Rocha. And today we are going to be finishing up our exciting three-part series on Alexandra Kollontai, uh, specifically her works pertaining to socialist feminism, motherhood, child rearing, and the topic that's on a lot of people's minds right now, abortion. Mm -hmm. Um, We had, let's see. Do I have to remember the names of the first ones? No, I do not. Mm-hmm. We had two great ones, and now we're doing a third. Mm-hmm. Uh, unless you want to like review well, the first one, a little I, bit. I, I, I see. I got it right now in the doc. The first one was uh, the social basis of the woman question, and I tackled that one. Um, and then Jorge tackled uh, communism and the family. That's right. Um, yeah. And Jamie's ah, yes. piece today. We're, we're, yes. we're a family values podcast. Yes, this That's is the right. actual family family values podcast, whereas the right says that they care about family values, but uh, up until, and children, up until the child is born, um, as a socialist communist, we actually do care about the family. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of the most important values we have relating to the family is uh, family abolition. Mm-hmm. True story. Mm-hmm. You got to abolish the family, it turns out, to truly, truly value it. But uh, we're going to get into all that um, in this podcast. So... The text that I have prepared by Alexandra Kolontai is called The Labor of Women in the Evolution of the Economy. And we're going in chronological order. So this is the most recent text we'll be looking at right now. It was published in 1921. Um, What was going on in 1921? They had the Soviet Republic. They won the October Revolution. Um, The Civil War was still happening, but it was almost done. And they were looking ahead to the establishment of the Soviet Union, which would happen just one year later. That's right. That's right. So... In This is the context in which she's writing. Um, if you want a little more background on who Alexandra Kolontai was, you go back to the first episode and Jorge tells you a little bit more. So in this text, Kolontai frames motherhood not as a personal choice, but as an obligation to the labor republic that would soon become the Soviet Union. In this labor republic, she says, it's necessary to develop the productive forces of the country, and that necessitates maintaining a steady supply of workers from one generation to the next. Mm. Therefore, care of the younger generation, she says, is not a private family affair, but a social state concern. Mm. That's right. You need workers to work in the factories to build up those forces so that you can do socialism. Mm -hmm. Quote, Maternity is protected and provided for not only in the interests of the woman herself, but still more in the interests of the tasks before the national economy during the transition to a socialist system. It is necessary to save women from an unproductive expenditure of energy on the family so that this energy can be used efficiently in the interests of the collective. It is necessary to protect their health in order to guarantee the labor republic a flow of healthy workers in the future." The labor republic sees women first and foremost as a member of the labor force, as a unit of living labor. The function of maternity is seen as highly important, but as a supplementary task and as a task that is not a private family matter, but a social matter. So basically, she's saying, 
it's important for this new uh, socialist republic to support pregnant women and families, not only because the people deserve support, the women, the children, etc., but also because they're performing two functions that are useful to society, namely productive labor, where they go to work and make stuff, as well as reproductive labor, where they make more workers. And they need help with this reproductive labor so that it doesn't take away too much from their ability to do productive labor, which was very important at this point in time. So no stay-at-home moms in the Soviet Republic. <laughs> she continues. In order to give women the possibility of participating in productive labor without violating her nature or breaking with maternity, it is necessary to take a second step. It is necessary for the collective to assume all the cares of motherhood that have weighed so heavily on women, thus recognizing that the task of bringing up children ceases to be a function of the private family and becomes a social function of the state. The principle that Soviet power accepts in tackling the problem is that the mother be relieved of the cross of motherhood and be left with a smile of joy, which arises from the contact of the woman with her child. So, yeah, there you have it, folks. The Soviet Republic wants you to have it all. Uh, ladies, uh -huh. they want you to have kids. They want you to enjoy your kids. But also they want you to work, 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 work for the good of this new collective society that they're trying to build. Now... I don't know if I agree with the implication that giving birth to children is an essential part of being a woman. I think she gets a little essentialist when she says uh, it's in our nature, but uh, it's possible here she was just trying to strengthen her argument at a time when uh, pretty much everybody believed that motherhood was sort of an essential aspect of womanhood. What do you guys think? Yeah, yeah, I could say, I, could, I think I agree with that, Jamie. I think that like given the context of the time, which I mean, you know, you could imagine that, um, you know, yeah, now those ideas are more liberating. But even now, right, we, we're still arguing about what it means to be a woman, obviously. But even imagine then, right, where, I mean, even as a socialist feminist, right, that was seen as a core part of being a woman. I think we could give her a little slack and be like, okay, in the context, you know. Yeah. Yeah. It was also like 100 years ago. Exactly. Exactly. So yeah. they weren't... Uh, she wasn't necessarily, like, trans rights were not necessarily an issue that were on her radar. Yeah, yeah. That, that, that was on her radar. Mm -hmm. But, um, yeah, let's keep going. So, during the first months of the revolution, when I held the position of People's Commissar of Social Welfare, I considered it to be my main task to chart the course that the Labor Republic should adopt in the sphere of protecting the interests of women as a labor unit and as a mother. So in this section, she talks about all the different things they were doing to support mothers. Uh, we went over it a little bit in the last episode, too, so I'm not going to read it all. Um, but she admits it's still not enough. She says they have um, consultation centers for pregnant and nursing women, milk kitchens. I guess this is for, you know, babies who, for whatever reason, can't get milk from their moms, uh, maternity homes, creches, orphanages, kindergartens, children's clubs, special rations for kids' needs, public schools, and finally, children's house communes and children's work colonies. Hmm, not so sure about that last one. Yeah, the last one, that last one sounds a little sus. Kind of, kind of, you know, makes me go, mm, but okay. Might want to do a little more research to find <laughs> out what was going on at the children's work colonies. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But of course, she says at the end of this, the most important task is to relieve the working mother of the unproductive labor involved in ministering to the physical needs of the child. Maternity does not in the least mean that one must oneself change the nappies, wash the baby, or even be by the cradle. 
The social obligation of the mother is above all to give birth to a healthy baby. She continues, the labor republic must therefore provide the pregnant woman with the most favorable possible conditions, and the woman for her part must observe all the rules of hygiene during her pregnancy, remembering that in these months she no longer belongs to herself. She is serving the collective, producing from her own flesh and blood a new unit of labor, a new member of the labor republic. The woman's second obligation is to breastfeed her baby. Only when she has done this does the woman have the right to say that she has fulfilled her obligations. Remember, they didn't have baby formula yet at this point in time. Mm -hmm. So basically, yeah, if you drink and smoke while you're pregnant, uh, you're going to hear about it from Comrade Kolontai. Um, but also, it sounds like she would be amenable to like any technological advancements that take some of this burden off of the uh, birthing parent, mm. which, you know, like I mentioned, baby formula, we have that now. And this is kind of going to be a bailiwick of fine, I think, because it already is artificial wombs, which we would have. I maintain that we would have in any socialist feminist republic worth anything in the near future. Um, if the primary like because her primary consideration here, right, is not really some retrograde idea about how women are defined by this uh, this magical experience of biological motherhood, you know, birthing a life down your sacred passage, yada, yada. Uh, she she like gives lip service to that. But I think the focus here is squarely on producing more workers. Yeah. Jamie, can I just point out one thing real quick? I really yeah. I really liked last episode we did where you uh, in your notes um, to the piece, you brought up artificial wombs because I had never thought about that besides like some dystopian sort of science fiction, like the matrix or something like that. You know what I mean? But I had never thought of it as like, well, obviously, you know, with the advancement of technology, like under communism, you would use this technology to continue to liberate people, right? Liberate them from not only work, but any other sort of social relations that would be applicable, um, applicable under capitalism, right? So yeah, I think uh, artificial wombs for sure, man, to relieve women of the burden of being a mother, right? The social yeah. burden at least. And I think this is one of those things that is like never going to be a one size fits all thing across the board because the experiences that people have in pregnancy, gestation and childbirth are so, 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 so different. Right. Mm -hmm. Some people actually like being pregnant. Mm -hmm. They say that like pregnancy hormones are the best drugs ever. Uh, some people fucking hate it. And I think in, you know, hypothetical communist future worlds, uh, if there's people who actually enjoy being pregnant and maybe that's like what they want to do for their contribution to society, fine. Uh, if most people are like, oh, actually, fuck that. Uh, I would rather be uh, able to walk around and feel normal for nine months. That's fine, too. <laughs> yeah, I think oh. I agree with this conception that you've described of, of Colin Ty in that she probably would be amenable to those things you're describing. But I would say that if you think that I would, that it's not really compatible with this earlier thing you said, Jamie, about her being a, a kind of an essentialist, because I think at the fundamental basis that her talking about women having children is more about, she's just making an observation of like, well, we need to have more workers and more people. So that's what she's thinking. I If, if there were, something outside of that, I think she would just gravitate towards that. Mm -hmm. I mean, I guess we don't really know how serious she was about this being part of women's nature. Uh, also, like, for most people at this 
point in history, like this was just something they didn't even really think about. Right. Yeah. But I, I appreciate that the emphasis is more, I mean, I, I still am going to have disagreements with it, which I'll get to in the end, but I appreciate that the emphasis is more on uh, thinking in material terms rather than in these mystical terms about women's nature, human nature, et cetera. Yeah. She's not being romantic about it. She's being very like hard nosed materialist about it. Yeah. Yeah. Mostly. And then yeah. she throws in things like nature and instinct and stuff. And I'm like, all right, whatever. <laughs> so, yeah, she then she takes it a step further after that and says uh, in the highest stage of the labor republic, the woman, quote, not only cares for her own children, but has a tender affection for all children. Quote, the slogan advanced by the labor republic, be a mother not only to your child, but to all the children of the workers and peasants, must show the working woman a new approach to motherhood. There have been instances where a mother, even a communist mother, refuses to breastfeed a baby that is suffering from a lack of milk only because it is not her baby. Is such behavior permissible? Hmm. I don't know. Mm. I mean, I have an answer to that. <laughs> what do you guys think? No. No, that's a no, no, man. I mean, like we were talking last time, um, you know, it's about sort of in the last episode extending like all of these like sort of individualistic, whether they're privileges or just like social behaviors, extending that to like the collective to everybody. You know, um, yeah. I don't think we need to be uh, I don't think we need to be uh, uh, what's the word for um, um, territorial about uh, uh, children, right? About babies, you know. Yeah. yeah, we got to expand the circle of love and care so that every adult is responsible for every child. Um, I would only add the caveat that it's not only women who should be responsible for mm -hmm. all of the children, right? And and uh, not only cis women, which is who she's talking about mm -hmm. in this text. Yeah, I would... The only thing I would add is um, I think it's important to caution or like, to, be, to be cautionary a little bit too because... We shouldn't also totally decouple, even in, in about even if we abolish the family, decoupling the nature of a parent and child in the sense that at the end of the day, all children should have a primary caretaker in the sense that someone has to be responsible for them. And you know, this has been shown in terms of scientific studies that by nature, biological beings just have a fundamental preference for their own child, which that makes sense. But it, that doesn't necessarily mean that, oh, you should only care for your own. And, but, if you, but an important element as well is that everyone should be taken care of collectively, but mm -hmm. you also cannot be, in a, you cannot be in a position where it's like, okay, well, we're just going to raise children outside of any kind of like parents or anything because then well, uh, there needs to be a foundational element of like someone needs to be in charge of the cho of, of individual children at the end of the day. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think she strikes a good balance here between right. the individual and the social because, uh, yeah, there are certain biological things we can't really escape. Uh, one of them being the uh, like the the hormonal bond between parents and children, right? Like we know from science, it changes your brain. There's actual chemicals firing off in your brain that make it feel like I don't know, like you're being stabbed through the heart with a knife when you hear your baby cry, things of that nature. So yeah, yeah I think a I think a balance is definitely mm. warranted. Um, and can I? I 
Yeah, yeah. No, no, I just wanted to add too. I think I think again when when we talk about social relations under communism, it's not necessarily that we want to take away like the love that a biological parent or an adopted parent has for, you know, their biological child or adopted child. It's like you know, capitalism perverts and invert or gets perverts these relationships. You know, I think as Marx mm-hmm. says in um, the Communist Manifesto, it kind of puts, you know, father pits father against son, right? Mother against daughter, like parents against children, right? In this competitive nature, right? Even on, even in, within families, the nuclear family. So like, we don't want to like, you know, um, you know, I guess like um, take any strip any love away, right? Or any sort of um, 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 responsibility that a parent has for a child, but, you know, we want to actually make it wholesome and kind of expand that love, you know, as Jamie That's said, right. to the community, you know. Revolutionary love, Indeed. y'all. Indeed. Um, my only caveat here when we're talking about, you know, people nursing or caring for babies that aren't theirs is, yeah, it needs to be voluntary. Uh, but I don't think Kolontai is saying necessarily that people should be like forced into doing it. Right. Like, I think she's more saying shame on you if you don't do this, which is like, in my opinion, I mean, we talk about this a lot on this podcast. I think sort of social shame or just like social norms, uh, that's an acceptable mode of coercion in (laughs) my communist future world. Like we're never going to eliminate it completely. And I think that's a fine a fine thing for society to run on. It's not like you're going to get thrown in jail if you don't do it. So fine. I just imagined um, a um, cursed character in my head right now of a mm-hmm. uh, mom Stalin in the sense of like, no, you're <laughs> going to, no, you're going to take good care of these little shits. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you're going to breastfeed all these kids and you're going to fucking like it. Totalitarian nanny state, mommy state. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you're going to go to the gulag. Yeah. Talk about a nanny state. LOL. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, wow. So anyway, <laughs> she continues. There are, she, the, she, the, She then notes that there are currently mothers who intentionally deprive their babies of milk to save themselves from having to care for them. So basically, infanticide. Uh, She also notes the number of orphans is on the rise. Makes sense. They're in the middle of a civil war. Shit is tough. Um, She says this is because the Soviet state has yet to completely solve the problem of motherhood, right? She says there are still not enough supports in place for women to both work for a wage and raise children. She says the more supports there are, the fewer orphans and infanticides there will be. At the same time, she says this number will also go down when working women understand motherhood as a social obligation. A little bit of personal responsibility, perhaps. I don't know. Um, Sidebar, I like it that there's nowhere in this text where she, like, it doesn't even come up the idea that people would just, like, not have sex outside of uh, marriage or readiness for parenthood. She's like, yo, people are going to have sex. It's fine. Yeah. Uh, what we got to talk about is what happens after that. How did you think this, so, this happened? How did I think? What well, no, it's like, it's like Colin Tao doesn't even address it because like, well, how do you think that this kind of happened? Like, how do you think this, this child came about? Oh, uh, yeah. No, it's like taken as a given. Like, people yeah. are fucking. Yeah. It's fine. Uh, which you know what I appreciate. She does. She has. She has a certain. Um, she has a certain sex positivity that I think will come out in other texts that we'll read of hers too. Mm. Um, so yeah, she then notes uh, the model of the social model of raising children is already enjoyed by bourgeois women in capitalist societies. We went over this in the last episode, right? Think about all of the different people who help rich people raise their kids. Uh, everybody should have lots of people helping them raise their kids. Like that's a good thing. We want to generalize it. 
then she says something that I like a lot. Quote, Soviet power tries to create a situation where a woman does not have to cling to a man she has grown to loathe only because she has nowhere else to go with her children and where a woman alone does not have to fear her life and the life of her child. In the labor republic, it is not the philanthropists with their humiliating charity, but the workers and peasants, fellow creators of the new society, who hasten to help the working woman and strive to lighten the burden of motherhood. The woman who bears the trials and tribulations of reconstructing the economy on an equal footing with a man, and who participated in the civil war has a right to demand that in this most important hour of her life, at the moment when she presents society with a new member, the labor republic, the collective, should take upon itself the job of caring for the future of the new citizen. Sounds good. Uh, really appeals to me as someone who is thinking about having kids and just like feeling really angry about uh, how little help parents get in the modern day United States and how fucking isolating it could be. And in America, ka, ka, ka. That's right. That's right. But, okay, now we're finally getting to the issue of abortion. But, I might ask, Comrade Alexandra, what if I find myself pregnant and I don't want to be? Big problem. So, she notes... That on the 20th of November, 1920, the labor republic that would soon become the Soviet Union issued a law abolishing the penalties that had been attached to abortion. And it was the first country in the world to do so. Why did they do this? Quote, Abortion is a problem connected with the problem of maternity and likewise derives from the insecure position of women. We are not speaking here of the bourgeois class where abortion has other reasons, the reluctance to divide an inheritance, to suffer the slightest discomfort, to spoil one's figure or miss a few, season, a few months of the season, etc. Now, I will say this is kind of dismissive of a lot of the reasons people get abortions, right? Uh, childbirth is one of the most painful experiences a human can go through, and it can literally kill you. Uh, also, they didn't have anesthesia yet at this point in time. Uh, but let's, let's see where she's going with this, all right? Quote, abortion exists and flourishes everywhere, and no laws or punitive measures have succeeded in rooting it out. A way around the law is always found. But, quote, secret help only cripples women. They become a burden on the labor government, and the size of the labor force is reduced. Abortion, when carried out under proper medical conditions, is less harmful and dangerous, and the woman can get back to work quicker. Soviet power realizes that the need for abortion will only disappear on the one hand when Russia has a broad and developed network of institutions protecting motherhood and providing social education, and on the other hand, when women understand that childbirth is a social obligation. Soviet power has therefore allowed abortion to be performed openly and in clinical conditions. So, essentially, uh, they repealed the laws against abortion, not because of the right to individual bodily autonomy, uh, but because women were just going to do it in secret anyway, potentially maiming themselves, and that's going to have the opposite outcome from what they want in terms of the size of the labor force. Uh, she then says it's the task of Labor Russia to, quote, strengthen in women the healthy instinct of motherhood, mm, there's that instinct again, to make motherhood and labor for the collective compatible and thus do away with the need for abortion, end quote. 
Uh, ja- so she's yeah. Jamie, I just wanted to just wanted to point something out too. When you said that they repealed the laws not because of the right to bodily autonomy, but because women are going to do it anyway. You know, we say this all the time. It's not a new point, but it's just he wrote this a hundred years ago, and it's just kind of insane to see like the same arguments and the same sorts of reasons why we believe in what we do, right? Like, we make that argument all the time, right? That, like, women are going to get abortions anyway. I mean, not only the bodily autonomy argument, but, like, you're just hurting more women, hurting more people by not allowing them to get an abortion, right? So it's just kind of wild to see that 100 years ago in in the state we are today. It's uh, I think think very infuriating. Yeah, like, we know... We know it doesn't work. It only punishes people. And she already knew this back then. Now she's not going down the road of uh, individual rights. But I feel like, I don't know. I feel like she maybe did understand that on a level beyond what she's sort of letting on here. Uh, For no other reason than uh, she had many lovers and only ever had one child. So at the very least, she was practicing contraception probably Mm. and probably also understood just like the visceral fucking horror of uh being pregnant when you don't want to be bolshevik pull-out game strong as hell (laughs) the what bolshevik bolshevik pull-out game strong as hell (laughs) (laughs) i fucked that up by not hearing you but that is very funny um but but shall we go on yeah so Maybe this is an uncharitable reading, but I think she's kind of taking the Liz Brunig angle here, right? That motherhood is, you know, it's important for women to do. And uh, the only legitimate abortions are those performed for economic reasons. So, you know, if we expand the welfare state, abortions will go down. And if they don't, that means women are being selfish and bad. Only in this case, it's selfish and bad towards the collective and not towards God or whatever. Jamie, could I say something? Yes. So I think so I wanted to point out two things in what you read. One, I thought I found very compelling. And she's saying this throughout this text that kind of leads to the second point. She's, I think she's being very careful with her words in terms of how she's defining how the repeal of abortion came up. Uh, sorry, the, the repeal of the criminalization of abortion came about. Like now it's not criminalized anymore. She says Soviet power has therefore allowed abortion to be performed openly and in clinical conditions. That, I think, is very important to mention because she is not abstractly saying, oh, we, you know, progressive Soviet Bolsheviks are the one, you know, us, you know, Russian society, we're doing this. No, she's saying the reason it happened is because of the Soviet system that existed that people demanded it to happen. And... I think the second point is that she has her own opinions as to whether women should have abortions or not for that are outside of a economic aspect. But I think that element of including the Soviet power, it seems to me, although we'll see the rest of the text, is she's making more of a commentary on civil society in that, well, civil society is that, well, whether you agree with it or not, it being criminalized is bad because it's bad for society. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But the argument as to why it's bad for society is because uh, it actually detracts from the net number of workers in the workforce. Right. Well, I mean, it's also people because people are dying. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The, hence taking themselves out of the workforce. Right. 
Right. Like if you're if if uh, a ban would. Well, well, we'll get into that. We'll get into that in a second. So, yeah, I guess she's also like I shouldn't really compare her to Liz Brunig because uh, unlike Liz Brunig, she's saying, uh, yeah, this is this should be legal. Right. And here's why which is something that, uh, you know what, this chick gets too much attention. I'm going to stop talking about her anyway. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, but I think she's sort of symbolic of, you know what? No, no, she's not. Not in the U.S. There's no real constituency for, like, socially conservative social Democrats. Never mind. Um, but continuing. I think, I think just, like, maybe, like, not even her specifically, but I just think anyone who thinks that, you know, you can have, um, you know, if, you, if you're anti-abortion that suddenly, you know, you can have, like, you know, after that, these uh, the social welfare system, you know what I'm saying? That because finally, supposedly, uh, the state cares about children now. I just think that it's kind of like, you know, just to kind of highlight like the contradictions in that, you know, just as an example um, why that's oh, pretty for insane, sure. you know. For sure. Yeah. For sure. So then she describes the situation with abortion in the quote unquote bourgeois countries, quote. In these countries, women are exhausted by the dual burden of hired labor for capital and motherhood. In Soviet Russia, the working woman and peasant woman are helping the Communist Party to build a new society and to undermine the old way of life that has enslaved women. As soon as woman is viewed as being essentially a labor unit, the key to the solution of the complex question of maternity can be found. So basically lean in, but make it socialist. Uh... Hmm. Okay. I, I brought this up on the last episode. Um, the fact that there are, there have been lots of capitalist countries that have accounted for women as labor units when making welfare policy around the family. Uh, and this welfare policy has looked quite similar to a lot of what they did in the Soviet union. You know, we got the Scandinavian countries, we had, uh, the golden age of capitalism in the U.S. when labor managed to win a family wage and capital accepted it because uh, either because they had to or because they saw the utility in uh, social reproduction and in uh, one worker being able to support uh, two adults, which is what you actually need to do in order to uh, raise up healthy families to the to be the next generation of workers. Um, but there is, there are still differences, like I mentioned. Um, obviously, the uh, social democracy, the welfare state, is always contingent on what the market is doing and what the market will allow. So it can easily go away again in times of crisis. Whereas in the USSR, right, they're ostensibly working hard now so that we can kind of outrun that rat race in the future and not be subject to the whims of the market anymore. Um, and, you know... It's possible this made a, a big difference in how people viewed their own labor in their day-to-day -day lives. Um, but it really, yeah, it really depends on how people, how people relate to it and how people buy into this idea. So um, there's a nice ending paragraph about how only a communist economy can lead to the liberation of women, which I obviously agree with. Um, and that all sounds really great. But how did it work in practice? So I was sort of Googling around to find out how abortion worked in the Soviet Union and um, what happened as things progressed. And I found an article in the LA Times. I can put a link to it. You know, bourgeois news source, take it with a grain of salt. But um, here's what they say, quote. 
Statistical data from the late 1920s in the Soviet Union show that typical abortion patients were not poverty-stricken, unemployed, or unmarried. Women got abortions for many reasons. They wanted to continue their education, to work outside the home, and to provide better care to the children they already had. As one jurist noted, women attempted to control their fertility less because of poverty than the simple wish not to have a child. Okay, some of those things sound very much financially mediated, mm. but I believe right. that it was a mixture, as it often is, of different reasons. Quote, as millions of women entered the labor force during the industrialization drive of the early 1930s, Soviet officials became increasingly concerned about the impact of abortion on the birth rate, which fell from 45 births per 1,000 people in 1927 to 30 in 1935, which is a pretty big drop-off. Okay, here comes Stalin. In 1936, Joseph Stalin consolidated power, and the state once again made abortion illegal. According to the new law, those who performed abortions could be sentenced to up to three years in prison. Women who chose to abort could be subject to fines. And unlike the recent efforts of U.S. states to restrict and criminalize abortion, the Soviet law outlawing abortion was accompanied by a vast expansion in childcare centers, maternity clinics, food supplements for children, and stipends for mothers. Every employer was obligated to provide four months of paid maternity leave and provide pregnant women with lighter work at their former pay grade. No four months. Sounds good. So, so I guess I guess Liz Brunig four is a Stalinist. Uh, is yeah. that, I guess she would she would prefer to live in Stalinist Russia then. Well, little bit, little bit. <laughs> Yo, but like uh, I'm, I'm still I'm still reeling at the four month paid maternity leave. What? Yeah, it sounds sounds pretty pretty good yeah, from where I'm sitting. All things considered. Um, still not as good as having all those things and you're allowed to get an abortion. Right. Yeah. Right. No, totally. Uh, but yeah, let's go on. Although Soviet women welcomed the additional benefits for mothers, as one would, they reacted angrily to the prohibition on abortion. Many wrote letters to the newspapers and to Soviet leaders protesting the prohibition of a practice they saw as essential to protecting their families and their participation in the wider world. The law didn't change, but it had little impact on either the rates of birth or abortions. Yikes. Makes sense. The birth rate increased after the law was first enacted, but the increase lasted less than two years. By 1938, the birth rate again began to drop, and by 1940, it returned to its 1935 level before the abortion prohibition went into effect. And by 1939, the abortion rate was higher than it was in 1926 when the procedure was legal. The death rate from illegal botched abortions soared as women returned to the underground practices they'd been forced to use before 1920. Oh, man. Wait, can I, ask you guys, can I ask you guys a question? I might be wrong on this. Um, would you say that the, the birth rate decrease was because the quality of life under this burgeoning socialist state increased. So people were like having, I mean, also too, there were, I guess, obviously abortion laws um, were implemented at the time, but I don't know. It seems like, you know, you improve the conditions for people and for lots of reasons, people had less kids and then you punish them for it, you know, or when Stalin came to power, punished them for it. I think there's a lot of reasons. I think it's not yeah. just that. Yeah, not, yeah, not just that, not just that, obviously, yeah. I, yeah, it's hard. It's hard to really say. I would need to like take a really hard look at this data mm. and compare it to the timeline of what was going on in the Soviet Union. Yeah, um, yeah, because. I, but then, hmm. I go for it. 
There's like sort of a happy ending here. In 1955, two years after Stalin's death, abortion was once again legalized in the Soviet Union and remains legal in Russia to this day, although various nationalist organizations seek to criminalize it once again. Mm. Honestly, guys, I was surprised that abortion is legal in Russia because it's just such like a fucking hell place yeah, yeah these these days following the fall of the soviet union things have gotten uh pretty bad there and also like feminism isn't really a thing so i guess good for them for mm. having better abortion laws than we have in the united states so <laughs> what i was gonna say before is that and i want to be very specific with my words is that mm. every like if you just remove everything we've been talking about in terms of and like just purely from if the reason why um, Stalin like implemented this kind of recriminalization of abortion was, and it seems that that is what we know is like the it was to re uh, like make the birth rate go up. If that was the purpose. And then looking at the data and what occurred, it was a failure. That yeah. so, oh, absolutely, Valentine was right. Solely on those grounds, it was a failure, and mm. and that's important to mention. Now it's like. Now it's bad for other reasons, right? And now it's important to mention that also that yeah, yeah, it's great that they added these other things, but in also, you know, there was bad also for individual reasons. It's bad for you know being anti, anti woman and um and those who can have kids, you know, not accounting for their rights. But I think just purely if it was to increase, uh, birth rate, it failed, and that's mm -hmm. the only thing that matters. I think because I, and. I actually think that that is it. I'd be curious to know how much that is the case generally in um, in other places that have criminalized abortion. Mm. Um, although I'm sure that's not that many. There are that many places that that's been the case. <laughs> mm. Yeah, I mean, we'll have some. We'll have a lot more data on that pretty soon in the here and now. Well, definitely going up in terms of in, in terms of rates of death for sure. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you're just replicating harm, too. I mean, not that not that in today's United States, not that, um, you know, conservatives care about replicating harm. But I mean, like, you know, as um, the Jamie as the piece that the article that you read said, the death rate from illegal botched abortion soared as women return underground practices. Right. So, I mean, even on that, that alone as well, like it was a complete failure. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So like on the merits that Colin Ty is first arguing for abortion being legal. Um, like she's right. She was right. She saw into the future. Once again, mm -hmm. Stalin was wrong. Um, abortion continued whether it was legal or not. And, um, yeah, it's hard to say how many of these, how much material concerns were a factor in these abortions. They certainly were a factor. Um, but not the whole picture because like the statistics showed us, uh, there are lots and lots of reasons not necessarily tied to economics to the degree that it's possible to disaggregate anything from economics in a world still ruled by them. So I will push back in terms of uh, what the LA Times suggests that these were not for the most part uh, like economic or material reasons. I would argue that a woman wanting to continue their education or to like, live on their own is in fact an, a material argument because, oh, for sure. because so give me a second here, but basically it has to do with like our belief about like overcoming class society. And if women are still tied to the whims of like what happens when like they 
oh, you have to now give up uh, your your individuality because you are being coerced into doing something you choose not to do, then that is a material oppression onto you. Even if it's not, if, you know, even if you count for say all these other things of like the welfare benefits in terms of like, you know, childcare, paternity leave, that doesn't matter. There's no buy-in in terms of like a, there's, there, there's a, there's a, um, encroaching and of your material freedom. Yeah, for sure. For sure. But I'm just saying, uh, like the idea that abortions would necessarily go down to zero if we had a really, really good welfare state is demonstrably untrue. Sure. Like look at, uh, all the, like you would think that there would be hardly any abortions in countries with a much better welfare state than we have in say the U S and that's not true because sometimes you're just not ready or you just don't want to have a kid. And that's, uh, that's fine too. But yeah, that is material uh, when it comes down to it think, as well. I think an unspoken so, thing as well with respect to like, like if you look at the time scale, so like it became decriminalized in and legalized in 1920, right? And it became criminalized in 1936. That's 16 years. I point to that range for, for good reason is that you had an entire generation of women that got raised in this kind of environment of, oh, you can have an abortion when you want it. You can get education. You can live on your own. You know, essentially, like you are, you are becoming more of an, you know, quite frankly, experiencing yourself as a human, as a total, a more fuller person than you were before, uh, more control on your life. So, if you put it, if you do that back again, you know, this is not really a liberal argument. It's more about like, no, your your the superstructure has changed. Like it, it changed in the sense that the the relations on the base has changed in a way that now it informs your ideology. So then, so when, when that's imposed again, it's like, well, you can't like unravel your lifting of your consciousness on that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, in some ways it's sort of, uh, emblematic of the Soviet union in general and what it was, right? Because there was a time when it really seemed like the world was up for grabs and the workers might win Mm -hmm. and they might be able to, get to communism someday. They might be able to live in true freedom. And uh, even though it was ultimately unsuccessful as a project, uh, we remember, you know, people remember that. And I think we're not going to stop trying. Well, I mean, it was, it was, it was successful in the kids sense that we're like, we will keep trying. Right. Like there are obviously like, you know, things that like about the Soviet union that, um, you know, you don't want to, you don't want to carry over into a, um, into a, uh, 21st century socialist movement. But, um, you know, I think uh, for for the things that it uh, succeeded at, I think we could take those things with us, right? Yeah, for sure. For sure. So, okay. Now I'm going to say, I'm going to editorialize a little bit more than I've been doing. Um, (laughs) I guess I've been doing it all along. But like, okay, I want to place reproductive labor on a continuum with all kinds of labor. Mm -hmm. Although, you know, this is a kind that uses your body in really extreme ways. Um, I think it points back to some issues with the political form taken by the USSR, um, the way that it manifested. Um, I like, I think Stalin gets a lot of more, a lot more blame than he deserves on some points. I think some of it was him being like a crazy, you know, power mad dude. But I think a lot of it was overdetermined by the system 
because he was really in the mainstream of the Bolshevik party. So this country, right, he had a situation. They needed more workers to be born. Uh, they gave people 16 years to volunteer to do this job, the 16 years when abortion was legal, and not enough people did. So now, guess what? It's the job, it's the prerogative of the state to make people do it however they could. So maybe Stalin made a bad call on this particular issue, uh, given the data we have now. We know he did, but he didn't know the future. And it wasn't an insane thing for him to try uh, you know, tasked as he was with making more workers happen. Right. So the disagreement that we've framed between Stalin and Kolontai, like I said uh, here, wasn't really over what rights people had as individuals, but like we said, what the impact of the law would be on the supply of workers. So given the the logic that she's using, you know, if she thought banning abortion would lead to a growth in the labor supply, she would have been publicly for it. Um, so I think this sort of points at maybe one of the shortcomings to basing abortion access purely on what it's going to do or not do for the supply of labor. Um, I think it also is a lens into these larger issues I have with um, state socialism or, you know, the form it took specifically in the USSR because, you know, most people can see that forcing people to give birth against their will, uh, even for a finite period in history, is not worth whatever might be coming at the end of it um, and could even act as a block to achieving this nice free society where everyone gets to have a nice life called communism. But then where do you draw the line between having babies and other forms of labor? Like, uh, it's an open question that I think we're going to keep coming back to. So, I think I agree for the most part, Jamie. The only thing I would push back is saying that, well, it's kind of to the point that I said earlier about how Colin Ty, I think, is at least in part framing this, that you actually can base it on, like, what it would do to the labor supply of the population, but it's more of, like, accepting the reality that, well, people are going to do it anyway, so you are going to minimize people dying and then having severely injuring themselves no matter what. And, and that's independent of whether you think people should get or get not get abortions. So, well, what if there's a way for the state to absolutely force people to have children in a way that would not take away from the labor supply? What if they could elim absolutely eliminate all of these uh, back alley abortions via you know any means necessary? I mean, honestly, I think that like... There were, you know, Stalinist Russia is was definitely a state that had the capacity to potentially do that. But I, I just doubt that that is one possible. Um, I think that to prevent back, it's, it's, so here's like a, let me give a, let me give another example. That's kind of like a similar way than in terms, in terms of like the collective behavior. It's like the war on drugs in a sense that now, I don't think doing drugs is bad. I think for the most part, people do whatever they want so long as they're not harming people. Um, but if you think that you should reduce, you should stop people doing drugs, that is a, a response to that of like, oh, we need to crack down. But what's been shown is like, that doesn't really work. So like, regardless, and you know, and not, and not, not, and not to suggest that there was, there's not been resources to try it. They've been the most wealthiest society in history. The United States has, spent hundreds of billions of dollars on this and 
for nothing, nothing to show for it for the most part. In fact, only have destabilized societies like Mexico, for instance, and Afghanistan. So it's, I would suggest that I think that that you're presenting this I- ideal like situation that I think is just not possible given what we know, how history's played out. Mm. Okay. So I guess then you think there's really no point in arguing about forced birth versus other forms of labor because forced birth is not technically possible. Well, no, that's not what I'm saying. What, what I'm saying is that you People will find a way to get an abortion, no matter how you think, like, no, no matter what you think it's like, uh, like it's, people are very creative. Individual people are very creative in terms of finding ways to, to get around it. It's in the same way that like, even if someone's extremely monitored, people still manage to do crime, right? And I think it's a matter of the fact of like, you, you focusing so much on trying to force an outcome that doesn't match with what naturally occurs in a human society is something that causes more problems. Yeah, I guess I'm just trying to draw a comparison between that and other forms of labor, right? Because if the state is tasked with making people go to work in the factory Mm -hmm. so they can build up the productive capacities, if the state is tasked with trying however they can to make people have more kids, um, I think it's it's easy to get into sort of a dangerous coercive territory mm-hmm. where um, coercion is being applied to a degree that's uh, that's unacceptable to most people and might even stand in the way of um, of this great socialist project, which is supposed to be a positive one. Right. Um, I also I want to push back on the idea that uh, citizens of any society, but especially a socialist one, should be valued primarily for their labor, right? For their ability to perform productive labor, which uh, we're going to get into the specifics of what all these things mean, I think, when we do the great white whale that is capital. Mm. Uh, But basically, productive labor is something that produces economic value. Right. So uh, the question remains, I think, as to whether this is um, a good way to try to get to communism, uh, either because the state's going to lose legitimacy before it reaches the point where it's supposed to wither away, or because maybe it doesn't give people the training they need to run the world voluntarily, or maybe because this vision, this sort of barracks communism, this vision where everyone's just a wretched workaholic working 24-7, when the time comes, I don't know if it's going to train them to do what needs to be done to ascend to the next stage, you know, the good part, the mm-hmm. higher stage communism, where they get rid of money and wage labor and become sort of fully realized human beings who value themselves and each other, you know, take care of each other voluntarily and aren't just uh, about work, 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 work. Um, Although, to be fair, I will say, I think uh, the situation now in, hypothetically, a socialist United States, or whatever it will be called after that, or, you know, let's take the communizer angle, a world, a globe, in the process of being communized, um, I think it would be very different than what it was in the USSR, right? Because a lot of jobs have already been automated, 
the amount of labor it takes to feed everyone is a tiny percentage of what it used to be. Uh, and further automation of tasks the majority of people find undesirable, including gestation, there's those robotic wombs again. Yeah. Uh, it's well within the realm of possibility. And also, oh my God, I lost my train of thought. Um, I was really on a roll. Hold on a second. Oh, yeah. And yeah, duh. Like, we've already industrialized. We've already solved the agrarian question. There's a lot of things, a lot of ways in which, um, in much of the world at least, capitalism has that blood on its hands mm -hmm. and socialists can concern themselves with other things. Yeah. Um, I think we can also do a better job at deepening democracy on a potentially related note, um, which could act as a check on certain decisions made by officials who might not be so accountable to the people. So the only thing I would uh, want to just say in terms of what you said before, at the beginning, Jamie, about like saying you want to push back on framing this around like labor, like, like that's the foundational element. Two things. One, that's not what I'm saying. I'm going based on what, what Colin Ty and like the, the argument has been laid out in the text. But, oh yeah, I'm, I'm pushing back right. on Colin Ty. But... On the flip side, I would say that that framing is not quite the framing because, like, remember, if you if you look at the title, "The Labor of Women in the Evolution of the Economy," I think partially what's going on. I think I think one, one I think part of it is like yes, there's like an element of like economism focusing so much on the labor and all of this, right? But I, I, on the other hand, I would say that I think. The reason she brings up like reproductive labor or brings up, say, abortion is that these are things that must be accounted for given the fact that women are laborers in society. Mm. I think it's like she brings it up because you can't not talk about it because this is like if you care about having the productive labor force in a developing social society, you must account for these things because uh, if, as Marxist, you're focusing on like, you know, the output of labor increasing value, then you must account for that. Now, I would say that I think it's to base it solely on that is wrong. I agree with that. But I think that that's not exactly the total element of the, it's not all, they're not the, the entire argument is not structured solely on that. Yeah. Okay. So you think maybe it's like more an analysis of what's there than necessarily a prescription for socialist future world. Um, I think it's a, I think it's an analysis of the situation in Russia. Right. Um, but also I think that because if you're going to have women laborers and I mean, you know, more generally like people who have children, if they're going to be in the workforce, then you must account for this. Yeah. 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 I want to, I just wanted to say too, I think that, um, I think, yeah, I mean, obviously she's talking about like a developing socialist society and this lower stage communism. So I think in the United States or, you know, um, any any state today, we're already industrialized. Right. I mean, we could already use like technology and the forces of production to, I mean, you know, increase productivity. Right. While also like lessening, like also like not exploiting people. You know, you don't necessarily, I think, have to think about it in terms of like, well, how much how many workers are we adding to society? Like, I think especially given the fact that we know that forced births don't actually have, as you were saying, Jamie, pointing out the intended outcomes in socialist states. Right. Like, I think I would hope that that's not even that's not even that's a non-starter. Right. If we were trying to build, um, you know, socialism in the United States or I guess anywhere else in any country today, you know. 
all over the world. All man. over the world. Communization. Best, best yeah. case scenario. Best case scenario. Um, yeah, I I agree. Um, I think I think in the end, let's go back to those enlightenment values, mm -hmm. right? Um, I I've kind of gone back and forth as to whether these enlightenment values, this concept of individual rights, um, whether these are valuable because Marxism did grow out of this enlightenment tradition, or if we just need to throw them in the trash and completely break with them because they are associated with liberalism. And I think like I was really going back and forth trying to sort of square the circle as I was reading this. Um, but I think, I think abortion rights need to be predicated at least partly on people's rights as individuals. And yeah. uh, maybe that's okay, um, right? Because uh, Marx, as I said, grew out of enlightenment values. I agree with these values. The reason I'm a communist is because I think that's the only way to fully actually deliver on those values, you know? Mm -hmm. Liberty, equality, fraternity. It's like, yo, this but for real. This but unironically. Well, um, and, mm -hmm. and I think that extends to uh, nobody, like... Communism is the only way to respect people's bodily autonomy, which doesn't just include abortion, right? It includes being forced to work, using, use their body or mind in ways that they don't want to be doing, whether they're having kids or whether we're working in a factory, whether they're being forced to do it by the impersonal domination of the market or, you know, the needs of this developing state socialist project. And uh, I think the way it benefits the collective is that, you know, none of us are free until all of us are free, right? It sounds cheesy, but uh, I don't want to live in a world where some people are oppressed. And I think on that level, um, maybe that's how we square the circle. What do you guys think? Yeah, I think, uh, I think that like liberal values like individualism and at least from my conception of communism, I think you guys would agree is that like these collect this collective undertaking and these socialist projects are are for the benefit of you know an individual's true potential right for you to fulfill your true potential you know like if you didn't have to worry about like how you were going to feed yourself or clothe yourself right or house yourself you know if you didn't have to do a fucking job that you hated so that you could just survive and you had the opportunity to do whatever you wanted to do while having those basic necessities covered you know that's truly being an individual right like liberal values like individualism or individualism as a liberal value those values only my opinion, seek to like not only just socially reproduce capitalism and its social relations, but like further alienate people, you know, like they're not really actually about being free. Right. It's sort of about being like another cog in the machine and being able to socially reproduce yourself and, you know, your class, you know. So yeah. I, I agree, Jamie. I think these like abortion, for example, is a right should be rooted, you know, in part it shouldn't be dematerialized, but I think it should be rooted in individuality, at least what it means to be an individual, to live up to your true human potential, right? To have that autonomy, right? And independence. So yeah, I agree. Yeah. But I think, I think the way you square the circle again is, um, cause they talk a lot about how, you know, your individual needs need to be subservient to the collective, right? right? What is a collective? It's made up of individuals. Exactly. <laughs> so if everyone is being made miserable in service of the collective, I'd say the collective isn't doing so hot. So in that way, in order to have collective happiness and collective freedom, um, everybody needs to have it for themselves. Yeah. And that's not necessarily uh, 
There's not necessarily any conflict there. It's a positive but. feedback loop, right? Like it's kind of like the uh, base and superstructure. It reinforces, right? They reinforce one another. You know, the individual and the collective, right? But yeah. it has to be from a material, as we talk about on this podcast, it has to be a from a materialist uh, anal- analysis. Can't be dematerialized because then you get a then you get a liberal individualism. Right? Yeah. Well, well, to some degree, it's gonna be not material right because Mm. like on what is the material basis for any of us having rights as human beings Mm. like to a certain degree like you get to the bottom and you can either explain it by um i guess god which is how people have often explained it Um, quote yeah quote unquote natural rights Mm -hmm. which was how the enlightenment tried to sort of secularize and divorce it from God while Mm. still being like somewhat idealist about it. Mm. Like we can't prove that we have rights. We can't like do a logical proof. Like why, why do we do it? Go ahead, James. Like, Sorry. how do we know, how do we know we have rights? Uh, we just fucking do. Yeah, I'm gonna take a microscope and like you know like do to put it under and see what where are the rights? How can I quantify them? Yeah, yeah I agree. Yeah. So like, there's always gonna be a little bit of that. Uh, the and the question then becomes like, all right, we figured out what we what rights we think people have. How do we uh, how do we enforce that? How do we take them for ourselves? And that's where the materialism comes in. Well, I'm gonna disagree. Um, with a decent amount of what both of you said. Um, I don't think that alignment values is the right framing. Um, so let me explain. I think that, I think what you said, Jamie, about alignment values is right in the sense that I think the only way you can fulfill them is through what Marx began to talk about in terms of you must resolve this kind of tension of like the individual and the collective. Um, and the fundamental barrier is the existence of classes in society. So only through Marxism, i.e. through communism, can you fulfill alignment values. But what I'm arguing here is not, we need to have alignment values. No, I think it's kind of like you're both fulfilling them, but also throwing them away. You're overcoming them. Alignment values. Overcome? Are we outheaving them? I mean, I, I think that's the only way. I think that you have to, and so I disagree with the framing of rights. I think that rights are a abstract bourgeois invention, really. Yeah, I mean, well, it's abstract pie in the sky that you then apply to material reality. I think not to suggest that you can't have things in your head. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is the reason people are able to have like, to be able to express themselves fully and have like their needs met is because their society is structured in a way that that's happening. Right. It's like, I remember this, um, there's a story that uh, the former minister of works at, in Liberia, when he was talking about how Europeans had come to Africa and what, like, what did they have to show for it? You know, the, the legacy of colonization and they have like, well, they wear suits. They have, you know, French names, English names, Spanish names, Portu- uh, Portuguese names, like, and alignment values. And he would go to these places in, in Liberia, you know, these like ghettos or, you know, slums, whatever you want to call it. And he said there was a conversation he had with a, with a, with a, with a father that really struck with him. He said, listen, um, these, like, telling him about, you know, human rights. 
And he said, these, these things you talk about, these, these, these things, can I, can I cook them and put them in a pot and feed them to my children? Can I wear them? It's like, it's like, and he's hearing it for the first time, but it's like, that's at the end of the day, it's like, you just went to the heart of the matter. It's like, well, okay, but what does that have to do with what is the situation materially right now? And I think, you know, but to go to what you said, Jamie, about like, you know, at the heart of the matter, I think it's not like about rights. It has to do, you know, a little bit about, like, I think we as Marxists kind of move away a little bit too much about talk conversations about, you know, human nature, quote unquote. But I think it's, I think a lot of the conversations, quite frankly, is just tied to this um, very narrow view of humanity that as the outgrowth of human of of of, of, of the enlightenment, which is like through the perspective of the individual. Hmm. There's this philosophy, this African philosophy, there's the term it's a called Ubuntu, that it basically translates to I am because we are, and also I am because you are. In other words, and it's it's interesting because this conception of identity, this conception of humanity is almost identical to how Hegel describes why is it that people have consciousness? And he described that people have consciousness because of recognition, which he was a term that he defines as, well, I am aware I am a being in the world and I exist because someone else also recognizes that I exist because I recognize them. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it seems very complicated, but what he's saying is that we as humans, as conscious beings, are aware of the world because of each other. You can't separate our fundamental tie to one another as social beings. Yeah, well, I think we're kind of saying the same thing, though. Like, why do people deserve food and shelter, etc. Why do people deserve community? Uh, I don't know that there's any answer to that. Because they have biological needs. Huh? Because they have biological needs, not necessarily because they have rights. Well, well I mean, then, I, like, how do we how do we know? How well, do we know that we deserve anything? Well, be, well, I'll, without rights. Well, I'll put it this way: like, I mean, if you want to naturalize anything, like, kind of gets to piggyback what Hori's saying. If anything has to be naturalized, you know, like these liberal, I guess, values are naturalized. I mean, if anything, like collectively, like we lived collectively for like tens of thousands of years, right? And I don't mean to make it like an anarcho-primitive. We sort always of argument, have lived collectively. But like, yeah, but but like, you know, like the, the having like, you know, uh, like a child being raised by a collective is not something that's like foreign, right, to like human, quote, nature, you know? So, I mean, like rights, I think, Jorge, like the way you put it as well is like completely right because and maybe like maybe these are just my words. But I mean, as far as I understand, like rights are like this sort of bourgeois invention, right? I mean, like like to say that you have the right to do this, that that's somebody telling you that this is what you're allowed right. to do under this specific organization of society. Right. Like, as you were saying, Jorge, like, how can you analyze these rights? There's no quantitative way that you can and analyze them, observe them to say you're allowed this number, X number of rights. But I mean, it's just seems not only unproductive, right. To, to, um, have something like forced births, right. Or to kind of waver on these issues, right. As a communist, but it also seems like, I hate to use the word unnatural, but quote unnatural, right. It just doesn't seem like something that's like conducive to like the human, you know, being a human being, right. No, like an individual. See, at least. 
Okay, the the thing that I disagree with about um, this bourgeois concept of rights is not necessarily that uh, they're idealist, right? I think we're sort of talking around the way these concepts sort of arise from our nature as human beings, which evolved to be a fundamentally cooperative species right. for the vast majority of early human history. Um, I think my issue with these uh, Enlightenment values, these natural rights, is that it was a lie mm -hmm. at the time that people were talking about them, or maybe not a lie, but something that capitalism failed to actually deliver on. And then the question becomes, okay, how do we deliver on them for real? I think you use the phrase overcome, Jorge, and I really like that because uh, in, the, in the Hegelian sense, what that means, and I think the German word for it has some more valences of meaning than it does in English, it's not necessarily to like just cancel something and get rid of it, right? right? It's to, when you overcome something in the way that we're using it here, you, uh, you basically, you progress to something greater that incorporates aspects of the last thing. Mm -hmm. It's basically so abolishing. So in that way, I think we all kind of agree. Very Marxist though, right, as well, right? Like yeah, sort of the vestiges of the old kind of social system will be carried on into the yeah, new one, right? And yeah, and we can take the things that are good about these values, like, oh yeah, I agree that human beings deserve things and we can leave behind the sort of bourgeois individualism, which was always going to act as a stop on them being fully realized in the first place. Mm -hmm. No. Mm -hmm. So, so I want to, so I want to say something and it's about like, you both mentioned something about that. Oh, well we had lived collectively for tens of thousands of years and like in early human society, but I would push back and saying that actually Humanity has never not lived collectively. And let me be very specific what I mean by that. Class society does not mean we don't live collectively. Mm. The existence of civilization is, in fact, collective society. Like people living and buildings together, have working larger projects together, that is collective working. What is at the core of this tension of people not getting the things that they need to survive and you know thrive and not and self-actualize is there's this bifurcation in terms of who gets to decide where resources go and what is the and what is the future yeah yeah well i, yeah, think I guess i should have i should have added non-hierarchically in there because that's something that is definitely different now versus mm. then also the alienation aspect i guess i should have clarified that right because it's not it's we live of course capitalism is collective but i think mm -hmm. the aspect of alienation you know that separates us from each other even within our families ourselves i think that's that's and not i think that's entirely unique right in this in this uh in this iteration of uh of capitalism i guess that we have as a social system so yeah mm -hmm. that is true that is true. Well, I can't believe we're talking about philosophy and I'm not even high. I, I'm, I'm, uh, I, I didn't get as high as I did last time. So I'm, uh, I'm not, I'm I, not very high. I think I'm you high found, I think you found the correct balance. Indeed. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Well, the, I, I want to, I want to just make it clear for those listening as well. And, and also for you too, like why is it that I made such an emphasis on pushing back on enlightenment? And I think it's important that 
to be quite frank, I think that the Enlightenment was a important movement and step in terms of con- making concrete these kind of aspects of, from a scientific point of view, trying to think about, you know, humanity as like beings in the world. But the reason I push back is that it's also important that to decenter, at least from my point of view, decenter Europe. And I think many ways, the way that alignment uh, values manifested is quite frankly tied pretty intimately with the rise of colonization and white supremacy. Mm-hmm. And that, but that's why I use my words very specifically on like, well, no, hold on. There are some things that happened with respect and same thing with capitalism, like capitalism developed mesh of society. Like capitalism is a major factor as to why kind of what you said earlier, Jamie, the agrarian question has been mostly resolved in a sense of like people, everyone can be fed. It's just that they're not getting the food. Right. Mm -hmm. And in fact, only further reveals those kind of contradictions in our current social organization. But it's just like, because it's like European society through like the enlightenment, which led to the development of Marxism, which spread everywhere that for the most part has been implemented, has been non-European societies, has led, has developed these values that then allowed for, for values that would then undermine itself. In other words. Oh, for sure. For sure. And I don't mean to imply that uh, these European enlightenment thinkers like invented rights whole cloth either. Not what like I'm when we're talking about this African philosophy, right? About how will this feed me? Um, why do you think you should be fed? That's a right. Like people have natural ideas that, oh yeah, we're entitled to shit because we're human beings. Um, And I think, you know, some of these philosophers were sort of identifying that, maybe pointing at it in various really imperfect ways. Um, But yeah, it's, uh, it's, we're talking philosophy. So I tend to default to, uh, to them Mm. we're discussing these ideas, Mm. but like, I think rights, uh, I don't know. Yeah, I think I said it. It goes it goes beyond these uh, the small group of dead white guys well, for well, sure. The, the other reason why I brought up say like Ubuntu, which is like you know this African philosophy, I could have also brought up say other you know philosophies. It could be like say uh, you know an East Asian philosophy, or it could have been an indigenous philosophy. But I think the reason bringing it up is like there's a consistent theme is that all these societies were pre pre or for the most part not liberalized and were all cohering around this idea of, oh, the collective, the collective, we are because of the collective and you, and the collective is also you, right? Mm. And so like, it's like, not that there's only the collective or where it was like liberalism is like, no, there's only the individual. Um, yeah. It's like, no, both are real. And I use that to kind of suggest that actually communism is our nature. Mm-hmm. Oh, I yeah. mean, I agree with that. I, that yeah. to, I, I mean, I know that arguments from human nature are very controversial 
the point of being like radioactive uh, in many circles on the left these days because it's been sort of used like whenever you hear people talking about human nature or evolutionary psychology, it's usually like fucking Jordan Peterson right. or whoever trying to do pseudoscience and use it to justify some bullshit like gender roles or hierarchy. Right. But like, I don't know. I don't think we should necessarily throw the baby out with the bathwater right. here. I think there's a lot of uh, ammunition to the to the degree that we like even have to make an argument for communism uh instead of just like fucking amassing superior force and doing it um i think there's a lot of ammunition in evolutionary psychology right. if you look at the way that human beings evolved for centuries like um i was talking to my therapist about it and she said yeah the reason why it feels so shitty to be lonely and why everyone's so like depressed and anxious nowadays is because when we were hunter gatherers being alone could actually kill you. Right. Cause that's how people fucking survived. Right. So like, I don't think that's a damaging statement to make. I'm open to being, you know, proven wrong. Cause there's people that I know and respect who disagree with me, but like, yeah, I think, I think that's a fine tool to have in our toolbox. This, it reminds me of what I said before and what you're saying, Jamie. It reminds me of a great phrase that David Graeber, rest in peace, said that, um, said one time. He said, capitalism is just a very bad way to organize communism. Mm. <laughs> Where it's like, wow. it's, it's, it's already there. It's just like, we're just not, it's just not organized right. Yeah, and, yeah all the pieces are in the wrong place. Yeah, and that could, one could argue that was always the case. Yeah. Ooh, yeah, like, interesting. Like I said earlier, man. I mean, it seems like the way we've been living collectively for um, without this uh, without this specific system of social organization, um, that seems more natural than um, you know the past five hundred years, right? Right. If you want to talk about what's natural and what isn't, right? Yeah, for sure. Well, okay. I'm gonna keep thinking about what you said, Jorge, about how we are living collectively now. That's uh. That's that's gonna linger in my thoughts as I as I prepare more materials on uh, theory and on history as part of this show. Yeah, I mean, it's just like when has it it's like that's why Cap uh, America is just so bizarre and things like like uh, the best way to view it, I think, is like look at Ayn Rand. Ayn Rand, best in my my opinion, is. Gets everything about communism and just decide. All right, I'm going to just make the exact opposite philosophy, and it seems so alien because, and it yeah. seems like, well, it just doesn't even feel like like it feels inhuman, and because it is. It, yeah. It, well, there are some things that are different, right? Like we live collectively in the sense that, like, a whole fuck ton of workers all over the world are responsible for producing the things right. that you and I use to survive from day to day. But it's not collective in that we don't know those people. Right. And in that their labor is hidden from us. Mm -hmm. And, you know, furthermore, it's not just about collective efforts. It's about um, how they're organized, who calls the shots, um, and who has access to the fruits of human labor. So I'm going to... you know. Uh, go I'm ahead, Hori. I'm gonna blow some. I'm gonna blow your mind, and and also people listening. I'm gonna really blow your mind because here I'm gonna connect to the idea of class consciousness. That's why raising class consciousness matters because what you're doing is you're revealing that this was always the case. You always were a collective. It's just you just need to. Oh my god! 
Mm. It's like the astronaut meme. Mm-hmm. It was all. Oh my god! It was always there. You just you just were lied to. Yeah. Well, we're living. Wait, the world's a collective. Always was. Always yeah. was man. Is that played out? Am I being a cringe millennial? No, like think, even bringing it up? Nah, I no, I think that's I think that's appropriate. I think that uh, <laughs> I mean that's also too. I was kind of thinking when y'all were talking. Um, I mean I don't know if this is like a flowery example, but you know how like when light, like the sunlight shines through like a prism or something like that, and it kind of diffracts like the light into different like spectrums and shit, colors and whatnot. You know, it's like. It's like that's kind of sort of I feel like what capitalism and like, you know, this this commodity advanced commodity production sort of does to like human nature, you know, mm-hmm. like we're kind of like this prism, you know, with like all these colors that are kind of embodied within us. But then the sunlight kind of shows through and diffracts us. It alienates us from one another, you know, and like all we kind of got to do is like sort of just reorient it. Right. Got to put it back together. We got to put it back together in a rainbow. You know what I mean? <laughs> no, I really like that. It also makes me think of the Pink Floyd album cover. That's what I was thinking. Is, uh, <laughs> That's what I was thinking. Of. Which is a which is a great album cover. Yeah. The second, I guess the sequel is when you put them all back together. But um, mm. what that makes me think about is um, the idea that we could uh, someday sort of reintegrate all these facets of human activity into one sort of harmonious thing called life, right? Mm -hmm. Like when Marx talks about um, higher stage communism, when labor becomes life's prime want Mm -hmm. and all of these things, uh, we we weaken the distinction between work and leisure. Mm -hmm. We do things from a mixture of obligation, of joy, of you know, personal interest of whatever. And it all becomes just stuff you do in the course of being alive to take care of yourself and each other, whether we're talking about, uh, you know, working in the fields or writing a song and maybe we'll never completely get there, but I think it's a really beautiful and important goal to have. No, I agree, man. I, I definitely think, um, you know, I mean, Mark's, Marx talks about it in Capital throughout his work, but it's just sort of the the way that these things have been like decoupled from one another, you know, and alienated from one another. And I like that, Jamie, this kind of harmonious kind of thing where all of those things are like connected, you know, and none of it feels like that you're doing one thing out of strictly obligation or strictly because you're being coerced to do so, you know, um, mm-hmm. it's just vibes, man. Communism is vibes, man. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you'll find no argument for me on that. I mean, it's just like, I look forward to a vibes-based society. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's kind of like if you think about it, if everyone's just like doing their part and everyone takes what they have and then someone comes along saying, no, I want more, 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 even though I don't need to. It's like that vibes off. Yeah, you, you're, yeah. your vibes are in retrograde, man. You need, to, you, need to, you need to check that shit out, you know? Maybe you need to go to yeah. re-education. No, I'm kidding. Maybe. Who knows? I mean, <laughs> maybe you just need a vibe specialist to come help you out in a nice, non-coercive way. At the vibes camp. We want well, vibes camp, but camp in a good way, not like a camp in the, like, you know, oppressive way. Camp in, like, summer camp. Vibes camp. Yeah. Yeah. The kind that you like to go to. Exactly, exactly. Not because your parents didn't want to spend the summer with you and shuttled you away to like a, you know. No, the kind that I couldn't wait to go to because I was being bullied a lot during the school year and I just wanted to be my artsy little goth theater kid self with other little goth theater kids and not have to worry about, you know, kids at home. You hear that, listeners? Don't let a... 
Don't let capitalism bully you. Don't let capitalism bully you. Go to communism camp. Yeah. Bu- bully right. back. <laughs> bully. <laughs> nice, Jorge. Exactly. Bully back. Who bullies the bullies? <laughs> oh, shit. Yeah. Do we, uh, well, do we have anything else like to say? I feel like we can uh, kind of wrap this up because yeah. it's been an hour and a half. Sweet. I think this was a very productive and good conversation. And I think we'll be talking about all of these things uh, throughout throughout our journey on this podcast. Absolutely. So uh, thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks for participating, guys, as always. Yes, yes, indeed. Thank you guys for listening. And uh, yeah, thank you guys for, uh, thanks for having this conversation with me, guys. These three conversations. Like I said, I never read Colin Ty's work before, so uh, I'm happy I did. And Absolutely. I will be reading more, and I uh, will we'll be sure to be reading more, too. Absolutely. And I hope everyone enjoyed it. And if you did, be sure to go to our Patreon at patreon.com slash everybody loves communism or our fans at fans.fm slash everybody loves communism. Want it? You like the conversation? Be sure to keep, we can keep having this conversation at our Discord. And you can get access to our Discord by going to our Patreon. There's also a tier. If you just want the, if you don't want the free episode, the new, the extra episodes, that's fine. But you can also just get access to our Discord. Just cost three dollars a month, less than a cup of coffee. Join, mm-hmm. join the join, join the club, hang out with us, be cool, and have vibes with us. Indeed. That's right. All right. Until next time. Do the, do reading. the reading. Do the reading. Bye. Bye. Bye.